Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me this morning to 1 Peter chapter 3. And we'll be focusing our attention uh, on verses 20 through 22 this morning. And especially on verse 21, which is another one of those challenging verses that Peter gives to us. He wrote exactly what the Holy Spirit wanted him to say. We just struggle with understanding it. Uh, but it's a, it's a great text. It has been oftentimes misunderstood and misinterpreted. But we'll try to work through that uh, together this morning with the Lord's help. So, just to remind you again of the context, uh, Peter has been writing to these churches that are scattered throughout modern day Turkey. Some of them are going through trials and persecutions already. Peter, I think, senses that there is more on the horizon. So he's encouraging them to persevere in the midst of suffering for righteousness. That's what he says in verse 14. And encouraging them who are facing persecution or opposition for their faith in Jesus Christ, he reminds them in verse 14 that they are blessed. Don't forget that you're blessed. And he'll expand on that more in chapter 4, what that blessing entails. And then he tells them, don't fear man, don't fear those who are persecuting you, but rather sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart. Continue to live a life that elevates Jesus Christ, that sanctifies Him as your Lord in your life. Be ready to make a defense of anyone who asks you to give an account of the hope that's within you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And then he says, keep a good conscience in verse 16. And suffer for doing good. Don't suffer for what's doing evil. Don't be tempted to do what is wrong in the eyes of God. Do what is right in the eyes of God. And keep a good conscience in that regard. Knowing that those who are persecuting, they are the ones who will be put to shame. And then he reminds them that Jesus Christ Himself also suffered unjustly in verse 18. He died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, that He might bring us to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but He was made alive by the Spirit of God, which I interpret as His resurrection. So He too endured similar to what you did. Of course, His was to save us from our sins. But He arose triumphant from the, from the grave. And we will share in that victory in due time. So be persevering. Be faithful to follow Christ. Don't abandon Him. Don't deny Him. Don't sin against Him. So He's encouraging these believers. And all of these words of encouragement should be stored up in their hearts whether they need them now or not. Some of them probably were not suffering. Some of them may not have been persecuted just as today. Sometimes we're not suffering. But we need to store up these truths because those days may come. 
I know in my yard, in my front yard and backyard, I've got a lot of nut trees. I've got two black walnuts in my front yard, and I've got several pecan trees in my backyard. And the, and the squirrels are just going nuts, literally, over the nuts. And they're out there tearing up my front yard because I have shady grass in my front yard and I have to reseed it every year. And they're out there digging up little holes and burying these pecans all over the place. It drives me nuts. But they're doing it because they don't need those nuts today, but they'll need them later on. And some of these truths that Peter is giving his readers, they may not need it today because they may not be suffering today. They may not be persecuted today. But those days may come. Storm up in your heart. Know where they are. So you can go and feed on them and draw the strength and, and nourishment from them when you need them. So that's what he's been telling them. And the verses that we're looking at this morning fit into that overall purpose to encourage the saints to persevere in times of suffering for righteousness. So now we come again to verse 20 and through verse 22. These spirits that Jesus preached to, verse 20, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah, during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. And corresponding to that, I'm reading the New American Standard, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers have been subjected to Him. Well, in these verses, we come to that phrase in verse 21 that baptism now saves you. And this particular verse has been used by many to teach that you're not saved unless you're baptized. It's been used by the Roman Catholic Church to support their view of baptismal regeneration. That when the infant is baptized, that they are regenerated. That they are given Christ's righteousness. Adam's sin is taken away. And, and so they are basically saved at that point. Some in the Church of Christ have also argued that you can believe in Christ as your Savior but you're really not saved until you're baptized because baptism now saves you. It's the, it's the church ordinance of baptism that actually imparts salvation. But obviously, we don't think that's what that is saying. And if you look at verse 21, he begins with this uh, phrase corresponding to that, that is to Noah the flood, the ark, corresponding to that, which your Bible may translate as symbolizing that or as a figure of that or as an antitype, which is literally what the word means. Noah, flood, the ark was a type, a picture of 
New Testament baptism. And they emphasize that in our Bibles to let us know that we're talking about pictures and analogies and symbolism here. And I think that's going to help us to understand the phrase, baptism now saves you. It's a symbol of salvation. It doesn't literally save you. The, the act, the ordinance of church baptism. But we'll get into that more in a moment. Baptism actually, the church ordinance of baptism, water baptism, is a picture of several truths actually. One of them is it is a, a picture of the cleansing from our sin doesn't actually wash away sin. It's a picture of washing away our sins. When uh, Ananias, in Acts 22, when Paul is telling his conversion story again, he speaks of Ananias who came to him in Damascus and told him, get up and be baptized and wash away your sins calling on His name. And Ananias doesn't link the Washing away your sins with being baptized is wash away your sins calling on His name. That's what washes away your sins. The baptism merely is an outward picture of that. So washing away of our sins. So when someone, we of course we practice immersion. I think that's what they did. So when someone goes under the water and comes back out of the water, it's a picture that as the the water kind of washes their body, so to speak, that that is a picture of what has already happened to them by faith in Christ. Their sins have been washed away. So it's a a symbol, a picture of that glorious truth of what faith alone and Christ alone gives us. And that is the cleansing from our sins. And that is pictured in water baptism. Immersion and coming back out. The second picture of water baptism is that we've been baptized into Christ's death and resurrection. Paul in Romans 6. We read some of that in Colossians 2 in our Bible reading this morning. That when you're baptized in water, you're symbolically reenacting the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He died for us. He arose again. And because He was representing us, we share in that. So we have died to sin. We're alive to God in Christ And that picture is beautifully presented in the immersion process of baptism. But what we have in our context is a different picture dealing with Noah's flood. So what Peter is saying, and this is kind of the connection I'm going to draw from this, is that Noah's flood and the ark is a picture of Christian baptism. It's a picture of Christian baptism. And baptism is a picture of salvation through faith in the crucified and risen Jesus Christ. So that's kind of where I'm going with it. So let's kind of now look at the text and uh, start walking through it some. If you look at verse 21, again, Peter says, corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Now, if Peter actually believed that the church ordinance of water baptism was necessary for salvation, then he not only contradicts the rest of the New Testament, he contradicts himself many times. Uh, If you remember back in Acts 2.38, Peter said something similar 
on the day of Pentecost. He's preaching at the temple. He's preaching to the Jews. And Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And again, a lot of people say, Look here, second time, Peter is clear, you're saved by baptism. You've got to repent and be baptized or you're not saved. Your sins are not forgiven. But if you say that that is what Peter means, then Peter contradicts Paul and John and the whole rest of the New Testament that says that salvation is given based on faith and faith alone. John 3.16 And God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him might not perish but have everlasting life. There's not a drop of water in John 3.16. Whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Nothing about baptism. Read the rest of the Gospel of John over and over and over again. John and Jesus are saying you receive the gift of eternal life through faith. No mention of baptism at all. So you run into a lot of problems. Obviously, when the thief who died on the cross with Jesus was not baptized and Jesus said to him, today you will be with me in paradise. Well, how could that be? A baptism was necessary for salvation. He didn't get baptized and yet Jesus said, you're going to be with me in heaven. So again, you have all of these verses that contradict the idea that You have to do something to be saved. You have to believe and then do something. Get baptized before you're saved. There's too many verses that contradict that. In the book of Acts, when the Philippian jailer, after the earthquake, and he he ran up to Paul and Silas and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And Paul said, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Not Not a mention of baptism. Not at all. You read Paul's writings, Romans, Galatians, the rest of his writings, we are saved by faith and faith alone. That's clear throughout the rest of the New Testament. So Peter would be in direct contradiction. He would be preaching another gospel if he taught that, no, you have to have faith or repentance and be baptized or you're not saved. So he would run counter to that. I don't think that's what he means by this. In fact, later on in the rest of Peter's preaching in the book of Acts, he talks about salvation, forgiveness of sins, but he doesn't mention baptism at all. So if it was a part of the gospel message, and he's leaving out half the gospel by not mentioning baptism. But look at what he says in Acts 3.19. This is when Peter is preaching to the crowd in the temple after the healing of the lame man. He says, therefore repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away. Where's the baptism? There is no baptism mentioned. Repent. Return so that your sins may be wiped away. Not a word about baptism. In Acts 5 verse 31, when Peter and all the rest of the apostles are preaching before the council. They have been arrested. The angel has delivered them. Now they appear before the Jewish council, Peter and all the apostles. And they say, 
He is the one whom God exalted to the right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Not a word about baptism there either from Peter or the rest of the apostles. And then you come to Acts chapter 10 when Peter now receives this vision of the sheets that are lowered down with the unclean animals in it. And the Lord tells him to to eat. And he goes through all of that. And he ends up being directed to go to Cornelius, who is a Gentile. And this is what Peter said to Cornelius and his family in Acts 10.43. Of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. No mention of baptism. Peter, are you preaching only a half gospel? No. This is the gospel. It's faith that is necessary for the forgiveness of sins. Baptism is an an act of obedience that we do after we come to faith in Christ, after we are justified, after we are saved. It's not an essential part of the means of salvation. Believe and receive forgiveness of sins. And then in Acts 11, when Peter is back in Jerusalem and he gives his report to the Jews about how God saved Cornelius and his family who believed, he says, they have heard this and they quieted down and glorified God saying, well, then God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. Again, no mention of baptism at all. And then when Peter, later on at the Jerusalem council, stands up and defends the fact that Gentiles can be saved and come into the church, what does he say when he's making his defense to the, the believers there that Gentiles are fellow heirs or fellow believers with him? He says that God, He made no distinction between us and them, the Gentiles, cleansing their hearts by faith. Nothing about baptism in there at all. And then earlier in this very same letter, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 9, Peter reminds them that they obtained as the outcome of their faith the salvation of their souls. Not a word about baptism again. So when we come to 1 Peter 3.21, and Peter says corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, He's not adding a work to faith. He's not saying you're saved by faith plus this work of being baptized in water. He would contradict himself. He has something else totally in mind, I believe. Well, let's begin to think about this uh, in this passage. Because when you think about the water and water baptism... There's nothing in the water that could save you. I mean, it's not like this water somehow is literally going to be the means of God to save you and forgive you of your sins. Why? Because in the context, he's just referred to the flood of Noah. And if there's anything clear, the water in the flood didn't save anybody. It killed everybody except those who are in the ark. So if Peter now suddenly flip-flops and he said, I've just talked to you about Noah's flood and that water killed the whole human race except for the eight, and then suddenly turns around and says, 
water baptism now saves you, he, he's totally contradicting the, the meaning of water in this context. Water baptism doesn't save. In fact, it's a symbol for God's judgment. The water in Noah's flood killed. It didn't save anybody. It brought death to everybody except the eight. It's interesting that water in the Old Testament is often associated with God's judgment. Think of the parting of the Red Sea. And the Israelites, after God miraculously divided the Red Sea, they went through the water, came out safe on the other side. The Pharaoh's armies followed them in. The water came down and killed them all. Again, water is a sign of judgment. Water is a means of judgment. Water didn't save them. It's oftentimes used as a symbol for death or the means by which God brings about death. It's kind of interesting that the Israelites passed through that water. They actually went under it Though there was a corridor of dry ground, but the water was piled up over them, so they were kind of. So it's another picture of baptism in First Corinthians ten, according to Paul. But it's the same thing in the ark. They went through the water. The water didn't save them. The water was what killed everybody else. It brought death to everybody except those who are in the ark. So the water in baptism, the water in baptism, Peter is not thinking that the water in any way saves you or actually washes away your sin. In fact, notice in verse 21, he explicitly says about water corresponding to that, that baptism saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh. In other words, what he's saying is baptism saves you, but it's not the water part. The water removes dirt from the flesh. That, that's all the water can do. But baptism saves you, but it's not the water part. And that would make sense because the water part is a symbol of death and judgment. So the actual act of being immersed in water isn't washing away your sins. All it can do is just remove the outer dirt from your flesh, it can't save anybody. So it's the salvation that he's referring to here is not really connected with the water. The water has no magical power to wash away somebody's sins. It can remove the outer dirt from the flesh, but that's not the salvation. That's not what saves you. It's not being immersed in water. So baptismal regeneration is clearly wrong, thinking that the water of baptism in some way washes away your sin. Peter says it's not the removal of dirt from the flesh. I mean, all the water can do is just wash you outwardly. It can't take away any stains on the inside. It can't save you. So the salvation that he's talking about is not connected to water. Water is a picture. It's a symbol. Remember? It's in correspondence to what happened with Noah's flood and the ark it's a picture it doesn't actually save anybody there's symbolism here that's the connection 
And then notice, just thinking about, again, uh, going back to verse 20 again, what was it that actually did save the people in Noah's flood? wasn't the water, of course. So what saved them? Being in the ark. That's what saved them. And Christ is really a perfect... He, he's, he, the, a picture of Christ is found in the ark itself. Notice what verse 20 says. That all these people were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight souls, were brought safely through the water. The water was judgment. The water was death. But those who were in the ark, they were the ones who were saved. So salvation doesn't come by the water. It came by being in the ark. And the picture of baptism is that when you're baptized, it's not the water that saves. Are you in Christ? He's the picture of the ark of Noah. Those who are in Christ are saved from the judgment waters of God's wrath. That's the truth of it. But he's relying on this symbolism of the ark. The ark is what saved, not the water. The water brought death. The ark brought life. You know, it's uh, interesting that in this context, uh, Peter has been thinking about Christ kind of like the ark in some ways. Uh, in verse 18, he spoke of Christ died for our sins once for all, the just for the unjust so that He might bring us to God. It's Christ who died. It's Christ who suffered in our place, who bore the wrath of God for our sins. He's the Savior. He's the ark. Those who are saved are saved because they're in Christ. They have faith in Christ. He's the one that saves. Water doesn't save anybody. It's a symbol of God's death and judgment. So he's been thinking in terms of Christ's death, and then he brings up this illustration of the ark. Because I think in Peter's mind, he's probably making that connection. And the ark of God, the ark of the Old Testament, the ark of Noah, is a very interesting picture and type of Jesus Christ and his death on the cross that Peter has mentioned here in verse 18. If you go back to Genesis chapter 6, verse 14. As God is giving Noah instructions on building the ark, He says, Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood, and you shall make the ark with rooms, and shall cover it inside and out with pitch or tar. So once He builds the ark, He takes all of this tar and pitch, which probably was bubbling up out of the ground, at that time, and he was to cover the ark inside and outside with pitch. And that's what made the ark waterproof. That's what enabled it to float for about a year of the time they were in the ark before they finally came out of the ark about a year later. So it was the pitch that sealed off all the cracks. It was the pitch that made that boat 
able to, to float and not sink in the midst of the waters of death and judgment. It's interesting, that word pitch is the same word that we use for atonement in the Old Testament. It's, as I have up there, that kopher is the Hebrew word. And it's a word that's used for atonement. And it, and it adds to this symbolism that the ark of Noah that saved the people is a picture of Jesus Christ through His shed blood made an atonement for our sins that we might not drown and be killed in the waters of God's wrath and judgment. And so the ark is a beautiful picture of Jesus Christ dying on the cross, making an atonement for our sins that we might be saved. Peter is adding to the cross of Christ His resurrection. He refers to that in verse 18, made alive by the Spirit. Here in verse 21, we make an appeal to God for good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So the ark is a picture of Christ's death and resurrection. He seals us from the judgment waters of God. He bore that for us. But He also went through the waters. He carried Noah and his family through the waters. And they ended up on the other side, on eventually on dry ground, a new world, a new life, through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So I think the ark is a, is a great picture of that. So what... Peter is saying in verse 21 that baptism now saves you, but it's not the water part. It's not the water part. It's being in the ark. That's what saves. Being in the ark of Jesus Christ. And that's why he goes on to add in verse 21, it's not the removal of dirt from the flesh. Again, all the water can do is just clean you on the outside. It can't take away your sins on the inside. It's actually a means of death. He says, baptism now saves you not the water part, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So that baptism now saves you not the water part, but the faith part. That's what saves. It's making an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So what Peter is saying here, again, is emphasizing that what saves is not ultimately the sacrament, not being the ordinance of being immersed into water. What saves you is your faith. It's an appeal to God for good conscience. And that can be interpreted in different ways. But the main point is, <clears throat> it's not the water, it's the faith. So what does he mean here when he says an appeal to God for a good conscience? <clears throat> and again, I'm, <clears throat> I'm aware that there are many different translations in the room this morning. <clears throat> so it's, uh, this word appeal to God is translated <clears throat> that way in the New American Standard, the ESV, 
The NIV translates it a pledge to God for a good conscience. And the King James says an answer to God of or for a good conscience. So it's kind of like, okay, what's this, what's this referring to? The reason why there's so many different translations of this word is that this is the only time this noun occurs in the New Testament. So when we only have a, a, a word occurring once, then you have to figure out and rest, okay, what's the right translation of this word? And the different translations are because the ones who prefer the word appeal or a request to God in faith for good conscience are relying on the verbal form of this particular noun. Because that occurs like 56 times in the New Testament, always refers to making a, a request, asking something, making an appeal. So they translate it that way. The word pledge says, well, we're not going to let the verb form influence us. We're going to go out into secular Koine Greek and see how the noun, which occurs here, is used out there. And oftentimes it was used of making a pledge like in making a promise or making a contract. So that's how the word pledge entered into the NIV. And the word answer is somewhat similar to the word pledge. So what, what's Peter saying? Well, he's saying baptism now saves you. Not the water part, but the faith part. It's when you make an appeal, when you ask God for a good conscience, when you ask God to, when you appeal to God to give you grace to live a life that honors Him, it's when you make an appeal to God for a good conscience. Either out of a good conscience or for a good conscience. But you come and you're appealing to God. You're requesting from God the grace to help you live a Christ-honoring life. You express your faith in the Lord Jesus to save you from your sins. And you make an appeal to God for a good conscience. Oh God, help me to live according to my profession of faith in Christ. Help me to follow you. You make an appeal to God. That would be the, the idea of, of that translation. If you say pledge or an answer to God, you've heard the call of the Gospel. You've responded in faith in Jesus Christ. And in your baptism, you make a pledge to God that with your grace and help, I will live a life that pleases you. And that's one of the questions we ask people when we baptize them. So it can be interpreted that way as well. And maybe between the two major ideas, maybe you can combine them both. That in baptism, the person is pledging to God their lives and appealing to God for grace to live according to it. And all of this is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's based upon their faith that Christ died for their sins and then arose from the dead. But it's not the baptism, it's not that church ordinance that saves. It's the faith that saves. And oftentimes that faith is first manifested way before they're baptized. So for example, with me, the Lord saved me when I was a sophomore in college. 
And when I first put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ, He cleansed me. He washed away my sins. He forgave all my sins. He justified me by faith at that point in time. I wasn't actually baptized until I was halfway through seminary. Now, that's not a good model to follow, but just in my situation, right after I was saved, I, some Church of Christ people came up and started telling me, you know you're not saved yet until you get baptized. And they began to raise all these doubts, and I decided, well, I'm not going to get baptized until I study it out, and I become convinced in my own mind what does happen when you're baptized. And so I just procrastinated, and this, that, and the other, and eventually got, got baptized. So the baptism was an outer symbol of what had already happened inwardly in my heart and soul. I had already been forgiven. I had already been justified. But that is pictured, it is symbolized in baptism when you go through the waters and you come back out. And that's, I think, the idea that Peter has in mind here. That baptism saves you, not the water part, but the faith part. And the baptism is a picture of that saving faith in Jesus Christ. Because when you're baptized, you're symbolically being identified with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection. And you're entering into the church outwardly and publicly. Usually baptism is the front doors into membership into the church. And you are outwardly appealing to God for grace thanking Him for saving you, pledging with a good conscience that you'll follow Him with His help and grace. And all of that is kind of brought out in the actual ordinance of baptism. Baptism, for many people, gives them an opportunity to re-express and reaffirm their faith in Christ. They're not saved when they're baptized. They're saved when they come to faith in Christ. But their baptism gives them an opportunity to publicly reaffirm and and confess their faith in Jesus Christ and His death and resurrection to save them from their sins. So in the context of Noah and the ark, I think there are several things that we can say are symbolic or correspondence between Noah, the flood, the ark, and Christian baptism. And again, the flood water is a symbol, a picture of death. The water itself doesn't save anybody. It's actually a symbol of death. Noah is a picture of the believer in the ark. And the ark is a picture of Christ. And in baptism, what we have is a picture of salvation through faith in the crucified and risen Jesus Christ. So what Peter is emphasizing, I think, in this challenging passage to try to fit together, is that there is an important connection between Noah's flood, the water, the ark, and that is a type or a picture of the salvation that we have by faith in Jesus Christ, crucified, raised from the dead. And those who are in the ark of Noah's day were the only ones who safely passed through the waters of judgment and death. 
And in Christian baptism, we're indicating that only those who are in Christ have passed through the judgment waters of death and come out alive on the other side. Because Christ bore our sin for us. He bore our death. He died for us. And those in Christ are protected from the wrath of God. It's like we're in the ark and we pass through the judgment waters and we are dry. We don't drown in those waters. We pass through them and we emerge on the other side alive because Christ died for us. He bore the judgment waters of God, if you will, on the cross for us. And He took away our sins. And those who by faith are in Christ have the forgiveness of their sins. So in baptism, we are immersed. Because I think that's what Peter has in mind when he speaks of not the removal of dirt from the flesh. He's talking about immersion. Wouldn't make sense if he's talking about the mode of baptism as sprinkling. Because that doesn't really remove the, the, the dirt from the flesh, but immersion would. So I think he has that in mind. So in baptism, we are immersed symbolically in the water of death and we rise again in life because we're in the ark of Jesus Christ. So you go under the water like the flood waters of death, flood waters of judgment. Normally you would die. But we go under the water, but we come up again because Jesus did that for us. He bore our death. He rose again in life. And we who are in Him by faith share in that victory. We share in that great salvation that He alone accomplished for us on the cross. So there's that correspondence between the flood waters, the ark, and Noah and his family inside the ark, protected from the wrath of God, protected from death, And they triumphantly came out into a new land with a new life. When they landed on Mount Ararat, all the waters subsided. And they're in a new world. And that has happened to us. We have died to the old man. We're now in the new man. We have a new life. Because we're in Christ. And all that He has done for us. So what's the importance of baptism? Well, number one, it's still important. It's not a saving ordinance. But it's still important because it's commanded. Believers should be baptized. It's often the very first fruit from a believing heart as it obeys Christ in Christian baptism as a church ordinance that brings them into the outward body of the church. We are identified at that point as a disciple, a follower of Jesus Christ. We make that public confession of faith. And it brings us again outwardly into the light to where we're publicly confessing our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's commanded, so it's still important. Again, baptism oftentimes took place almost immediately after people came to faith in the New Testament. And I think this is also why Peter seems to say baptism now saves you. He makes he distances it from the water part. He emphasizes the faith part. But back then in the New Testament, oftentimes when people came to faith, they were immediately baptized. So you can see how the church ordinance was so closely associated with salvation because it was 
closely in time associated with their faith in Christ. So on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 were saved. 3,000 were baptized on the same day. Philip goes and preaches to the Ethiopian eunuch. He comes to faith. He baptizes him right then and there. When Peter preached to Cornelius and they came to faith, the Gentiles and his family, immediately they were baptized. So Peter in his mind can associate, well now baptism saves you. Because they happen so close together in time. But he's not saying the ritual of being immersed in water is what saves it's your faith. And for most people today, there is a gap of time between their saving faith and the time when they are eventually baptized. Now we have classes and we go through all this stuff. In the first century, oftentimes they happened almost simultaneously. So that's why I think Peter can use that kind of language which sometimes can be confusing to us. So the risen and exalted Christ is their hope of salvation. And in verse 22, Peter kind of wraps it up when he says again, what saves you is an appeal to God. It's your faith in God. It's asking God for a clear conscience, a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who is at the right hand of God having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers have been subjected to Him. So again, this fits with the overall purpose of Peter. He wants to encourage these believers who are suffering for righteousness and saying, look, look at what Christ has done for you. Remember back when you were baptized, you remember you made a pledge to, to Christ. You, you requested from Him. You made an appeal to Him for grace to live a life that pleases Him. Don't forget that. Don't forget your baptism. Don't forget the pledge you made. Don't forget the appeal you made to God then that you might have His grace to help you live each and every day for the glory of Christ, to have a witness for Christ regardless of the suffering that you're going through. Don't forget the pledge, the appeal you made when you were baptized. And let that encourage you that you have the ultimate victory in Christ. He's already been raised from the dead. He's already seated at the Father's right hand. Let your faith be in that, knowing that one day you will share that fully with Him. That's why again, I refer back last week to the martyrdom of Stephen back in Acts 7. And when he said before the Sanhedrin, when he was giving his, his presentation of Christ and salvation through Him alone, says, Behold, Stephen said, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And it was seeing that vision of the victory and the triumph of Jesus Christ over death, over His enemies, and all the angels, the demons, are now subjected to Him. He is in triumph and glory now. And it was that vision of Christ 
and all that He has done in overcoming our, our sin, our death, conquering our enemies, now triumphant in heaven, that gave Stephen the grace and the joy to die in faith, to die faithful to his profession of Jesus Christ. And I think that, again, is what Peter is trying to impart to his readers. Don't forget, yeah, you're suffering now. You're going through difficulties now. You feel like you're on the wrong, the losing end of everything now. But one day you will triumph because Christ already has. He already has the victory. He's already now exalted at the Father's right hand. And one day He will come again. He won't stay up there forever. One day He will come again. And He will draw all the living and the dead to Him. And He will separate the sheep from the goats. And the sheep will go into everlasting life. And the goats to everlasting punishment. He will be the judge of the living and the dead. But He's our Savior. Keep your eyes on Christ. And that will encourage you to stand strong in the day of your own suffering. So I think that's kind of the general idea that Peter had. This is a tough passage. Um, if you're thinking, what in the world did he say? Then I tried my best. It's, it's a challenging passage, but hopefully at least we can understand that Peter means it to encourage their faith to see the glory of Christ exalted at the Father's right hand. So may that encourage our faith as well. Well, let's close in a word of prayer. Our Father God, we want to thank You, Lord, for all that Jesus Christ has done for us through His death and resurrection. How He bore our sins dying in our place. The just for the unjust that He might bring us to God. And to prove that He accomplished Your purpose, Your redemption on the cross, He arose miraculously from the grave on the third day. And now He is exalted at Your right hand, triumphant and victorious. And His resurrection guarantees that one day we will be resurrected and be with Him forever and ever. And so now as we deal with opposition, as we deal with persecution, as we deal with a variety of trials and threats and potential loss of blessings in this life, Lord, keep our eyes upon Jesus Christ and let us remember the faith that You have given us, the pledge, the request that we have made to the Lord to keep us to strengthen us, to help us to live for Him, knowing that He is faithful to His Word. And so encourage us in our time of suffering to know that the victory is ours because our victory is in Christ, our ark. And so Lord, encourage us and strengthen our faith, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.